1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Leslie Miller about the ways in which a narcissistic parent impacts identity, perception of the world, and relationships with others. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q and A, everyone. Today we have Leslie Miller back on the show, and we are going to talk about narcissistic parents. But before we get to this episode, for those that want to be a guest on our Survivor Stories podcast, the ones that we do on Mondays, for some people it's Sunday please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. There is a button at the top of the page that says Guest Form. Press on that button and away we will go from there. We're always looking for stories, so please do send in your story. And another thing that has happened in the last couple of weeks is we have debuted our brand new community support forum, social network, whatever you want to call it. We're all on there. We're having a really good time. People are posting. People are helping each other, supporting each other in our community. We have integrated Zoom support meetings. We have prompt books for our episodes to help you dig deeper, to help you get clarity within your relationships. You can create and run your own events on there uh this past week, we had an art night. I think we're going to be switching that to our meditation night uh, this Friday when you're going to be listening to this at night. We're going to be doing a closure ceremony that we call burn, break, or bury. And we're going to have uh, the ability to uh, you know, connect with people not just on this, but we're going to be able to connect on different interests as well. You're going to be able to come there and make new friends, get support from everyone. You'll have a good time. You we know we're not just there to, uh, we're, well, we're there to heal, but we're also there to meet other people, like-minded people, as far as the, the trauma that you went through, people that understand you, and make new friends in the process. So if you want to join us, you can go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, Apocalypse, and there's a community support button at the top of the page. And if you want to go straight to our the site, just go to community.narcissist Apocalypse.com, but I'll put everything in the show notes. And we have also a new friend of the show, and that is Domestic Shelters.com. So if you are someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. experiencing. So if you want to connect with your local resources and find ways to heal and move forward, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. They have tons of information on there. It is a free resource to access. So go to DomesticShelters.org today. And let's see, everyone. I think that's it for today. I think that's it. This was a good conversation with Leslie Miller. I think you'll enjoy it. You'll learn a lot. So thank you, everyone, for showing up here and listening and being part of our community. Being part of you know what we're creating here, and we're hoping to get a much bigger in the future. So please uh, keep on supporting us. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Leslie Miller. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today with me, I have Leslie Miller. How are you?
0: I'm great. Thank you.
1: Well, for everyone out there, Leslie Miller is a trauma-informed, licensed, independent clinical social worker who also administers EMDR. She was a custody evaluator, a.k.a. a a guardian ad litem from 2013 to 2019, who has witnessed the devastation of high-conflict divorce and how unresolved conflict and continued engagement in toxic relationships can impact the mental health and well-being of parents and children. You are a specialist in narcissistic abuse, divorce, and custody, and I just want to thank you for being here with me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: So today we're going to talk about the narcissistic parent, the long-term consequences and impact on children. So when it comes to abandonment issues, which is obviously a huge issue, uh, abandonment issues as a result of a narcissistic parent, what? Uh, why can this be a future predicator of relationships with other narcissistic abusers?
0: I think abandonment can't really be emphasized enough when it comes to um, outcomes in adulthood. I, I'd like to say that about 80% of my clinical practice. When someone comes to me struggling with narcissistic abuse in an adult relationship has experienced a narcissistic parent or narcissistic abuse in childhood. And it it certainly would appear that the odds of experiencing narcissistic abuse in adulthood are, are, there's a correlation. And because there's a sense of, of vigilance in childhood, that the child needs to be emotionally safe, needs to be nurtured, needs to be physically safe. And, and we're geared toward you know being wired to detect potential hazards and threats. A, a trauma o- occurs in childhood when we are abandoned. Um, and and in adulthood, what we tend to do is reenact trauma. So we will gravitate toward other narcissistic adults who will reenact this trauma. And we kind of throw ourselves headfirst into it, trying to have another outcome to heal the trauma. And of course, this, this doesn't work. It just creates more pain and suffering. Um, but I like to think of abandonment as sort of on a continuum. I mean, certainly we all come into the world needing for our needs to be met. Um, all of us fear isolation and abandonment. The, the, the perception of being alone, isolated, is, is, is really very traumatic. Um, abandonment can occur in all kinds of different ways, not only just having a narcissistic parent. It, it can occur through a parent who is a substance abuser, um, creating chaos, creating, creating disruption in the home, um, creating just a, a toxicity of never knowing what's going to happen from one day to the next, um, being a very unpredictable caregiver. Um, certainly mental illness, again, that lack of stability, I don't know what I can count on from my parent. My mother and father is unpredictable. Maybe I am the caregiver of siblings. Um, things like domestic violence, poverty, where there's inconsistent caregiving, where maybe there's outright neglect occurring. Certainly uh, a dying parent or a parent who has deserted the family Um and of course, narcissistic abuse, which cuts across, you know, all the the, the class and, and race and, and gender, um, that could that that impacts anyone that that experienced it. And if in the home there is a malignant narcissist or somebody who's outright threatening, cruel, engages in uh, very demeaning, cruel acts toward. Either the children or the spouse or the, or partner the the partner of the narcissist may be very beaten down by that and um, becomes anxious and withdraw themselves and are not able to provide the the nurturing that is needed to to have a healthy you know have a healthy childhood um, so what I like to do in my clinical practice is to kind of start with when someone comes in and they, they're experiencing narcissistic abuse or maybe they're just thinking about it, you know, is is my partner a narcissist? And where we kind of start from is where do you remember the first time that your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, partner, whoever the case may be, kind of, abruptly and suddenly, after a very loving, intense period where everything you did was great, everything you did was wonderful, you made them feel special, they made you feel special, you were unique, you felt seen and heard for the first time, do you recall when they subtly started to distance themselves, or there was a sudden but very, very noticeable shift in their demeanor towards you that you couldn't put your finger on it, you couldn't quite place exactly what went wrong, but you 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 kind of started to really scramble and get very, very panicked. And I like to kind of pause there and get clients to think about what happened in your mind. What were you thinking when you experience sort of on that gut level, like, I don't know what went wrong, but something changed, and I don't know why. Was your first instinct to blame yourself and look for, look for reasons? Because when we're a child, we, we look to make logical um, I- I excuses for an abandoning parent. And to the extent, because we can't we can't come up for reasons why someone doesn't love us or why love is, is conditional, as it is with a narcissist. It's a conditional transactional proposition, so love has to be earned. So our go-to tends to be chasing approval, jumping through hoops. What did I do wrong? And, and I, I like people to think about that, and we kind of look at, You know, how much is the trigger that's happening in your relationship now really connected to this core key element of abandonment and to the extent that you experienced it in childhood?
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Uh, actually, before I continue, before I do that, um, you know, listening to all that and, and discussing abandonment, you know, does abandonment cause anxious attachment style?
0: It absolutely can. It, it's not always the case that a person who was abandoned will be anxious. They they may also be avoidant. That that attachments cause pain, and that if you've learned to shut down your need for other and to be in relationship to other, then we may also seek to, to avoid. Um, what's interesting about, about abandonment is that this is, this is the way that a narcissist and a non-narcissist or someone with abandonment trauma actually mirror each other because the narcissist also has abandonment issues, pretty profound abandonment issues which is why they frantically and continually and perpetually seek narcissistic supply. So that triangulation, I can take you or leave you. I have, you know, I have somebody else. If, you know, you're not willing to play ball, I've got this other person over here. And so that's the case because they're never going to be rejected in, in their mind. So this is the, the, the dance of of abandonment where the, the narcissist with the, the, the person who, you know, fears abandonment really gets triggered and and you're sort of off to the races.
1: So when it comes to the narcissistic parent, uh, what are the ways a narcissistic parent impacts identity, perception of the world and relationship with others?
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is really critical I so when you're when you have a narcissistic parent you are invisible your needs are invisible you you are in service to the narcissist whether it's through trying to please the narcissistic parent um, be a friend to the narcissistic parent be a caretaker to a covert narcissistic parent where they're largely you know involved in their victimization where you're always trying to help. Um, you, you are not seen or, or heard. Your, your needs are invisible. Also, you know, through a lot of the dismissiveness that that happens, um, a child learns that their needs are not only unimportant, but they start to really disconnect from their own sense of autonomy and and an authentic self so we do know that children of narcissists do have you know some of them actually become narcissistic themselves it's not exactly known nature versus nurture the studies are really sort of new and not really um haven't really produced you know real answers that sort of that classic uh nurture versus nature question but um when our needs are continually denied, dismissed, or we're outright abused and devalued, um, we, we're, we're not able to engage in normal developmental activities. Either we're parentified or high achievers to win the approval of dad who only really pays attention to me if I won a medal um, at a gymnastics competition, for example um trust becomes a, a really really difficult task for a child of a narcissist because they 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 are not in relationship with trusting adults they can't trust that if they go to someone with a with a problem they're going to get a response back that is is helpful and it may outright really crush them they might experience experience more rejection and, and devaluing. I mean, living living in a narcissistic family is often sort of like being in a play. I, I like to almost think of it as like you're in a play and everybody has a script that they're supposed to read and each player has sort of their role. Who And the, the narcissist is always the director, the writer, and also the performer in the play. And depending on how well you read your lines that day... That's how you're going to be treated. Um, it, it's always in service of the narcissist. So when you have like a narcissistic mother, for instance, who um, is competitive, let's say it's a mother-daughter scenario, um, and the mother likes to compete with the daughter, that that can be anywhere from competing for the father's affection competing on on things like looks, boyfriends, um competing on who had a worse day. So let's say you've got a you've got a girl who's about, you know, 11 or 12 years old, maybe middle school age, starting to get a lot of homework, feeling very overwhelmed by the task of you know trying to become enter, you know, uh adolescence and cries about homework and is really having a rough time you know a narcissistic mother might have a a response to that that is like you know yeah sure you're tired you know you know what about what about me what about what about the fact that i that, that that i'm tired i haven't had a vacation in a long time you know i have to just do things so so they flip the script so that it's always 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 about them and and Again, your needs are, are invisible. Um, where, where fathers kind of enter the picture, um, this can do, you know, tremendous damage a, a, as well. Um, you know, where there's triangulation that happens. Um, one child might be a golden child. I mean, mothers also do this as well. Um, where one child is idealized and then there's a, a family scapegoat where that person is the container for all the rage, all the rejection, all the, 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 the failure. Um, and what's particularly sad about all of, you know, sort of the, the role that we're designed to play in childhood, we go out into the world... And we we try to, we're still playing that role. So, you know, you will often see with somebody who is, has been scapegoated and told that they're a failure and told that they will never amount to anything. Well, well, what happens? They go out and they have real trouble um, with, you know, meeting sort of some basic tasks of of life. Um, They may be very, very impacted in in their ability to to achieve goals you know to actually follow through on things um, they may question their decisions they they may self-sabotage they might numb out through drugs alcohol use or um, or going the other way trying so relentlessly to achieve that they end up with anxiety, health issues and, and substance abuse problems. So you know it's not a one size fits all, but it's incredibly problematic when you are not given granted the, the opportunity to develop and become a unique individual separate from your adult caregivers.
1: So when it – actually, I have one weird question. Um, When it comes to fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, you know, uh, there's the combinations of them both. There's the uh, mother-daughter, the mother-son, the uh, father-daughter, the father-son. Do all those combinations have the – I guess there's uh, blanketed things that go over all of those uh, relationships. But for each one of them, is there something that's really specific to each one? Um, You know, when it comes to, I guess, mother, son, and father, uh, daughter, you know, there's the term that gets thrown around, which is emotional incest. Where there's i guess a, a it, there's no sexual abuse going on, but there is I guess a sexual component, and a lot of the times you we hear the term uh when it's uh by these people, which is the word icky a lot um so are when you have these little tiny things uh you know are are there more than, than these kinds of things like when it's a daughter uh mother son father um are, are there little ways to uh, separate them if that makes sense
0: yeah that's such an interesting question and I think there's more research being done in this area and there really needs to be more um, I, I think that the issue of um, emotional incest is is really occurs when a child becomes a substitute for a romantic partner or the other parent, that mother either relies on son because father is absent or has abandoned or is otherwise occupied, or mother just has an incessant need for attention, where the son somehow steps up to fulfill that role. And that's a role that is very hard to extricate oneself out of because often that son feels responsible for 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 mom much later in life taking care of mom's needs and and, and a tremendous guilt and shame around that. Um, that is that is something very difficult to unravel and, and has to be done in, in therapy. Um, but the same happens with a father-daughter relationship in which, um, you know, the daughter is sort of the container for all those unmet needs psychologically by the father um, on an emotional level where it cro- it crosses the line just enough to have that ick factor. And when I work with clients, I, that's actually something and we use the term ick, you know, is what is the ick factor? On in, in, that you experienced, if if that apl- applies to, to your situation, and how does that feel in your body, and how did that sense of intrusiveness, how did you experience that, and give someone a forum to really explore that in, in a safe way, in a contained way, that You know, this was this was a a boundary violation in which you were you were filling an empty place in your you know in, in in your parent, and it's it's a really unfortunate occurrence. There is you know when it comes to gender, there is a bit of research out there that suggests that parenting styles mixed with gender do have an impact on outcomes. So parents who are more authoritarian who of both sexes, male and female, and they, they tend to be more authoritarian and, and punitive in the sense that um, you will obey me no matter what, really harsh consequences, not good reasons for behaviors, maybe outright ab- abusive, a father that engages, who's narcissistic and um, authoritarian, tends to 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 there 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 is some research that suggests that that parenting style mixed with narcissism may create grandiosity in a a, a, a child whereas a mother who engages in that they tend to if the child is vulnerable to developing narcissistic traits themselves maybe more of a covert or or also known as a vulnerable narcissist so there's not real good data out there it tends to blend parenting styles mixed with gender um i think that a lot of this is just really unique on how we experience you know our our family certainly a father who is always rejecting of his daughter or intermittently approving mixed with devaluing that the daughter what's going to happen when that daughter gets involved in dating relationships? Well, she's going to, you know, feel that she's unworthy, has to jump through hoops, has to read minds, has to, uh, perform, has to compete with other, um, women or whatever the case may be. And, and so, you know, that's a formula for a lot, a, a lot of heartache. Um, a, a son who has been absolutely crushed by a domineering narcissistic father really lacks a core sense of self. I mean, what's really sad is that often what you see, at least what I've seen in my clinical practice, is the trust is gone, but they just don't know who they are. It's almost like kind of rebuilding someone from the ground up because things were, you know, invalidated. They were treated in a very dismissive manner. A father is often, um, really intolerant, a narcissistic father, intolerant of, uh, males, his, his sons, um, Any displays of weakness, vulnerability, failure, that gets squashed quickly and in a really punitive, humiliating manner so that it doesn't happen again, where someone's masculinity even gets kind of tied up in the treatment, uh, you know, and and, and the abuse. So, um, again, it's unique for, for everyone. You know, everyone's situation is slightly altered in the way they experience these things. But gender does seem to play a, a role in how we, we cope out in the world, you know, following being raised by a narcissistic parent. I, I will say for in families where there is one healthy parent, maybe that parent is also being abused by the narcissist but they're healthy enough to parent and um, offset some of the damage that's being done, children fare much, much, much better that there is one parent validating their experience. And you see this a lot in divorce. So when my other, the other part of my practice where people are caught up in high-conflict divorce you know, I like people to understand not to give up hope that one parent might be really, really narcissistic. And yes, you know, you're, you're you are having to undo the damage, and I get it; it's it's awful, and you shouldn't have to do it. But if you are non-reactive, if you are validating the child's experience, giving them a safe place to explore their feelings, explore how they want to cope through it, understanding that they are not the problem, Um, you're much, much further along.
1: So what is trauma as it relates to narcissistic abuse by a parent?
0: Well, trauma occurs from repeated rejection, criticism, not feeling um, worthy, and outright abuse. So that would be cruelty in the home. You, particularly when when there's a, a malignant narcissist that could be the mother or, or the father. Um, it's an ongoing day-to-day trauma because what what happens is is that you are living in this hyper vigilant mode to sort of brace yourself from the next very unpredictable thing that the narcissist is going to say or do. You don't know when it's coming, but you know it's coming, and you know it's going to be really harsh when it when it comes. So, you know, everyone's sort of favorite um, saying walking on eggshells. It's, it's so perfect because it's so true. You know, if you're always, always tiptoeing around the narcissist, you're always walking on eggshells, what is that doing to your internal state? You know, it it, it isn't great. Chronic anxiety, chronic, it can, it can become, you know, chronic health issues. I see that a lot in, in my practice. People that have had years of this often have health problems. Um, it, it really does impact your health and your well-being. We, you know, we like to think of trauma as sort of like this one big event that happens like an earthquake Um, or somebody's house burned down, or an accident. But in in many ways, this is much more damaging because this is a day-in, day-out process that you never fully recover from. In fact, you just sort of get feeling better and the abuse happens again. And it becomes, you know, what's called complex trauma, where... It's slightly different from PTSD, but you have a lot of the same um, clinical presentation as, as someone who's gone through sort of a massive trauma all, all at once.
1: So when it comes to the healing aspect of things, what is a way to move forward? Clinical perspectives, how do people cope?
0: Yeah, so I think what's really really important is first and foremost is to recognize what's taking place. So a lot of times when they enter therapy, you know, they've just the light bulb has gone on that oh my god, it's not me, it's the other person. This person's a narcissist. And they they've learned about narcissism, which is wonderful. Thank God this information is out there. And people are not sort of in these bubbles thinking that this, this is me, I'm bad, I'm worthless, that they, there's finally a name for this. This is like a long time coming that, that this is even we've identified this as a, as a real problem in our society, in families, and in the court system where things like works of control and narcissistic abuse are, are, are really not recognized. So step one is, you know, is certainly awareness. But where do we go from that? Because at, at some point, it's not about the other person. What are we going to do with that knowledge? How do we get to the truth about ourselves? How do we rebuild ourselves again and, and get to learn about, you know, what, what made me vulnerable to this to begin with? And how can I not repeat this mistake in, in the past, how is this a learning experience? And I, I think exploring things like abandonment is, is critical. Um, the sort of that addictive cycle that people get into of trying to win over the narcissist, that they really get themselves stuck there. Uh, recognizing the trauma, how that, that feels in their body and getting help i mean i think things like emdr are tremendously helpful for for trauma related issues where um, you know it's based on the bilateral stimulation of the brain and reprocessing trauma so that it may that, that the triggers have less of an impact so you might actually be triggered again but that it, it's it's far it's to a far lesser degree, um, which once we're able to do that, we can build in some real coping. Um, when, we're, when we're less triggered, we can actually get down to the business of really doing, doing the work. Um, I, I really like things like, you know, trauma-informed yoga. I think that people that have experienced complex trauma um, have really disconnected from their bodies. Uh, you see a lot of, um, you know, depending on the extent of the abuse, people can be very dissociative when they're triggered. And learning how to safely be in your body and develop that awareness in a in a safe way that... Um, and and exploring, you know, sort of sensations. When I have certain sensations in my body, I know that that, that's sort of a a trigger talking to me Um, and, and learning those, those coping skills. How do I, how do I reparent myself? Um, and And it's, it's, it's not a one size fits all. So I think really starting from awareness and then moving into the what do I what do I do about it? Where where are my triggers? How did I get here? What is how was I at risk? What types of abandonment did I experience or or abuse that are contributing to the decisions that I'm making now? Um, and and then finding finding a good clinical approach to to deal with those things, I think is is critical.
1: You know, when you—I don't know if I've ever told this story on 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 any of the shows—but when it comes to somatic work, you know, in my own experience, it was a really big breakthrough for me. And I had a, a somatic coach, and we were sitting and talking, and we were kind of about to start an exercise for the day, and I'd already been seeing them for about maybe four sessions, something like that. And uh, they said to me, okay, relax. So I said, okay. So I got to relaxed, And then uh, my coach says, are you relaxed? And I'm like, yeah. And then I stopped them for one second. I said, no, I'm not relaxed. And they're like, what does that mean? I go, well, I'm sucking in my stomach. And I guess I've never noticed that, uh, I, I said I was relaxed, but if I'm sucking in my stomach, then I'm not relaxed. And I guess I've been sucking in my stomach my whole entire life because, you know, that's what, you know, acceptable was, you know, looking mm-hmm. a certain way. And mm-hmm. I guess that was what I was always doing. So I'd been walking around forever with never being re- relaxed. I was just wow. always in that constant state. and. My coach goes to me, so what would make you feel relaxed? How can you get relaxed? I go, well, I guess I just have to be as fat as I want to be. <laughs> so she goes, be as fat as you want to be. So I just like let my stomach just hang over my my jeans, really. <laughs> and And I go, wow, like I'm finally relaxed. It's been... 30-something years, and today I finally relaxed. Wow. So that was really interesting. And another thing that we did was, uh, you know, because sometimes it's hard to pay attention to your movements. And my coach caught me one time with my head in its tilted position while talking. And they said to me, what's going on right now? Because something weird is going on. And I go, what is that? What are you trying to get at? They're like, what is going through your mind? I go, well, I'm not paying attention to you anymore. I can tell you that. And they're like, okay. They noticed that when my head turned at a certain angle and kind of raised a little bit, that something went on, something triggered that, and that movement put me in a state where I stopped listening to everything and I was in La La and fantasy land. So now, um, when I start to go through thoughts or ruminating thoughts or, or just like not being present at all, I am able to be like, Oh, look where my, look where my head is. It was really interesting to kind of see that and then try and catch yourself. Do it. Um, to kind of reverse that of like what triggered that to do that. And then that movement, it's like, okay, that happened. And then that movement puts you into this other level. And so was, anyway, I'm going off into these tangents, everyone, but I just wanted to say like the importance of the somatic work, You're, your body knows everything about you and is doing things that you don't even realize that they're doing and they're doing them by themselves because you've been doing it for so long. So You know, everything's really trapped in there. So a lot of the times you're not able to to see it um, and to sometimes fix those little things really makes a massive difference in your life. And it did for me. So, you know, thank you for kind of pointing that out today.
0: I love love that example. I think... um... It's just the wisdom of the body and the way that we hold trauma and emotion in the body that when the mind can't get to it, the body can can tell the story so well, I just would like to ask if you don't mind did, did you have have you ever had you know stomach issues like g i upset is, like when you're stressed is that sort of your Achilles heel or was it really just sort of a muscular tension that you you know, tended to hold
1: on to. I think in my family, like uh, the way you look is a certain thing. Okay. And, you know, so unconsciously, uh, due to body issues, body dysmorphia, you know, I'm walking and sitting in this way my whole life because that's the projection of what I heard of what I should be. So uh, in front of, you know, certain people, I would do that. But then it just naturally started happening that that's what it would always be. And it took me until that moment to realize, wow, like I do this and don't even realize it anymore. Maybe at first it was something I had to try and do, but now I don't have to, now I have to try to not do it.
0: Right, right. But when you catch yourself doing it, you're also picking up on the emotion connected to it. So it's just so fascinating how you can sort of, it's sort of counterintuitive to work backwards because we think of our heads and our minds and our emotions as being separate from our bodies and it's all connected. You know, mental health and physical health are, are connected. So if our body talks to us, we should absolutely listen because <laughs> it's communicating something. So I just, I love that example and I, I think you're absolutely right. You you can't underestimate how somatic, you know, issues will show up is clearly connected to emotional ones.
1: Yeah. And that, that issue for me comes up as being good enough. Like that's what that is. So, mm-hmm. um, right. anyway, uh, Leslie Miller, thank you for being here today, for being our guest in the past and for being a friend of the show. It's always a pleasure to have you here and imparting your wisdom on everyone. So, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
1: And for everyone listening from Leslie Miller and I, we hope you have a good night.